Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's uh, Signpost webinar. The, the webinar is brought to you by Chagask in association with Food Drink Ireland Skillnet, Dairy Sustainability Ireland, and the National Rural Network. Uh, we're delighted that you could uh, be with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we have uh, Ted Massey, uh, Senior Inspector uh, with the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine in the Nitrates and Biodiversity Division. And we're also joined by Leanne Roach, uh, Agricultural Inspector with, with DAFM uh, in the same uh, division. Uh, Ted, I think you've uh, a long experience in a variety of roles in, in uh, DAFM and, and uh, both of you, I think, took over this uh, January uh, in the Nitrates section. Yeah, thanks very much, Pat, and good morning, everyone, and thanks to Chagas for facilitating this webinar. Um, yeah, I suppose, look, I've over 20 years working in the department. I've fulfilled a number of roles, and most recently I moved to Nitrates and Biodiversity Division in January, along with Leanne. And I suppose I'd like to pay tribute to my predecessor, Jack Nolan, who was a big help to me as I started in that role, in particular, you know, at a time when we were concluding the review of Ireland's nitrates action program and seeking to secure the extension to, to Ireland's nitrates derogation. Le Leanne is going to give us a short presentation now, um, and I suppose it'll set out the background to the nitrates action program and the most recent review. And I suppose, you know, there, there are a couple of key messages. We were faced with a situation where water quality hasn't been going the right way in recent years. And we have a situation where we've more cattle in the country and we're applying more nitrogen fertilizer. So that required us to look at the measures in the nitrous action program and strengthen them where appropriate to ensure that we would get our water quality back on the right track. So I'll hand back to you, Pat. Thanks. Okay. And Leanne, you've uh, were in the nitrate or in the, the, the nitrates and biodiversity division and then I had an opportunity to, I suppose, see a, a broader swathe of, 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 or I guess, broader swathe of nitrates and, and water quality experience in a, in a secondment to uh, DG environment in, in Brussels. Yeah, that's right, Pat. So I joined the department back in 2017 and I spent a year and a half in the nitrates biodiversity division. At the time, I was then seconded to DG environment where I worked in the Water Framework Directive Unit on water and agriculture there, so at the EU level. And, and I just came back then in December and started back into this division in January. So, yeah, a range of experience there too with the EU uh, part. A traumatic time to be travelling forward you and could, back to, to you Brussels. You could call it that travel. also, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, listen, without, without further ado, I'll get you to share your, your presentation with us. And uh, just a reminder to everybody uh, to use the, the Q&A for, for questions. I'm sure there's going to be a significant number of questions coming in. Uh, so uh, if you're ready, fire away there, Leanne. Okay, good morning, everyone. So I'm going to give you an overview today of Ireland's fifth nitrates action program and beyond. So just to give you an overview of what I'll present um, within the slides here, it's I'm going to start with the EU Water Framework Directive and the Nitrates Directive. So that's the EU requirements of what we have to do. I'll then focus in on Ireland's nitrates action program. So that's specific to ourselves. And then look at water quality trends. So what is our water quality status at the moment and what kind of situation are we in? I'll then move into the fifth nitrates action program measures. So we've had a number of action programs and we, we add strengthened measures to each one. So I'll hone in on some of the new changes that are there. 
then a little bit on the nitrates derogation. So we secured a nitrates derogation back in March. So just some information around that and the conditionality that's now attached to our current derogation. And then on the outlook, you know, if, if we implement all of these measures, what, where are we likely to get to and what's the likely outcome of all of this? So to start with, as I said, we have the EU Water Framework Directive and the EU Nitrates Directive. And, and this is a requirement for all um, EU countries that they must comply with. So what, what is the Water Framework Directive? The requirement here is that all countries in the EU must protect and improve their water quality in all waters. So this is all our rivers, lakes, all surface waters, all groundwaters, coastal water, transitional waters. Any water body we have must be improved, must be protected, and must achieve at least good status by the year 2027. Now, this year is the ultimate deadline. This was 2015 was the deadline with extensions until 2027. So this is the ultimate deadline. And we're not so far away from 2027 right now either. It's only a couple of years away. So we have a lot of work to do to get there to achieve this. The Water Framework Directive covers all waters and all pressures, all impacts. So that covers everything from agriculture to urban wastewater. Um, everything is included there. How the nitrates directive fits in is this is the integral part of it from an agricultural point of view. And the aim here is to protect water quality from pollution from agricultural sources and to promote the use of good agricultural practice going forward and reducing the losses that we have. So, so that's the EU overview of, you know, what, what are the requirements coming at us from EU? So also under the nitrates directive, there's a requirement for each country to develop their own nitrates action program to, to, to implement the nitrates directive in their country. And that leads me on to Ireland's nitrates action program. So the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage are the competent authority for this. But we in the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine work very closely with them on the development of this and the development of the measures. The first action program we had came into operation back in 2006. And it gets reviewed every four years. So there was a review in 2010, 2013, 2017, with the most recent one last year in 2021. And we make changes each time. So the water quality data is looked at and we, we add strengthened measures where necessary. So in the last couple of programs, we, we are adding strengthened measures and we now have the two year water quality review as well. So it's strengthening at each time um, and ensuring that we are achieving what we need to achieve. So the action program is given legal effect by the Good Agricultural Practice Regulations. So this is the SI 113 of 2022, and this sets out all of the regulations within the action program. This was signed into law on the 9th of March and all of the new measures um, became into effect from the 11th of March onwards. So the, the action program here, this, this relates to all farmers. So this all farmers in the country must comply with the nitrates regulations and and I'm moving on to the nitrates derogation here now, but for someone who doesn't know or understand fully the nitrates regulations and nitrates derogation, it can be a little bit confusing. What's the difference between both of these? So the action program is the basic rules and that applies to every farmer out there. The nitrates derogation is where you can farm to higher levels. So the action program, the, lim the maximum limit is 170 kilos of organic manure nitrogen per hectare per year. And if you're a highly intensive farmer, you can farm higher than that by applying for nitrates derogation. Um, but there are stricter rules that you must adhere to to have this as well. So this has also been in place since 2006 and, and it's reviewed every four years also. So it allows farmers to stock higher than what's in the regulations up to a maximum of 250 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. So we do have our derogation secured this year as well. And I'll, I'll go into further detail on that further in the presentation. But just to give that overview so we know the difference between the two. So that's that's the overview of the requirements. Um, and it's important to note that 
the action program and the nitrates regs are set up to deal with water quality and improve our water quality but there's a number of co-benefits to that as well if we're reducing our losses overall there's extra benefits for our air quality reducing the losses there benefits for biodiversity benefits for the environment overall and if we're reducing the losses to the environment it's maintaining those nutrients on land so there's an economic benefit to the farmer there as well if we if, if we can maintain those nutrients in the land so it is designed to deal with water quality but there's a number of co-benefits that we we should keep in mind as well so now to move on to water quality and and what status are we at currently so this is a graph and again I'll reference the EPA for all of the water quality data that I'm going to present to you here in the next few slides this is stemming from the EPA reports and data coming from the EPA. So this slide is showing us the pressures on water quality and there's the bar chart and showing the number of water bodies per significant pressure category. So there's a number of pressures agriculture off is always mentioned as a pressure on water but it, it's not the only one there's a number of other ones here and that is evident hydromorphology so this is you know changing the, the pattern of the river so be it for flooding or drainage we have forestry we've urban wastewater there's domestic wastewater there's a number of pressures on our waters however if you look at this bar chart overall you can see that agriculture is by far the highest pressure here accounting for a thousand water bodies the next highest is hydromorphology, which is just under 500 there. Um, so we can't hide away from the fact that agriculture is a significant pressure here. And this is why it gets targeted and why we need to implement measures on agricultural land to deal with our losses. So if we look at our recent water quality and trends, this data is from 2020 from the EPA, and it's showing us our river nitrate on the left hand side and river phosphate on the right hand side. If we can focus on the left hand side here first and just look at river nitrate so you can see the number of dots across the country and we have the the chart here showing us what they all mean the red ones here are the higher levels of nitrogen so the ones that that we'd want to be looking at to try and reduce those down because they are at the higher levels if we look at the bar chart here on quality this is showing us river nitrate quality and it's in either high good or unsatisfactory condition. So the blue here show, shows us that across the country, 36% is in high status. That's good. Then we have 17% in good status, but this leaves 47% in unsatisfactory nitrate levels. So it's almost half of our rivers. So we do need to reverse that and we need to improve that. If we look at the trend then to so the pie chart underneath that, here we're looking at either increases, decreases or no change. So there's around 60% there with no change, so that's stable. But then we also have around 38% that have increasing trends. So this is important. We need to reverse that trend and we need this unsatisfactory 47% um, on the quality side to reduce. That's on the nitrate side. If we move across to the right-hand side and look at river phosphate, Again, you can see all of the dots across the country and it's, 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 the, it's the kind of orange, the purple and the red here that you want to look at as the higher levels. But if we, again, if we look at the pie chart, um, we can see 54% is in high and 17% is in good status here, which is good. But we also have 29% um, unsatisfactory phosphate levels in our river. So we need to reduce this. And again, if we look down at the trend here, there's around 70% there with no change and around 24% with increasing phosphate levels. So overall, we do have increasing trends there and we do have unsatisfactory conditions and we do need to reverse those. So if we look at that, that's looking at the country overall, where are nitro nitrogen issues, where are phosphorus issues, and we need to implement measures um, to deal with those. But where agriculture is a problem, we can't always come in with the same measure everywhere. That's not gonna work. 
So if you have a phosphorus issue, this is runoff from poorly draining soils, sediment losses. Um, the trends in this appear to be stabilizing from what I showed in the previous graph, but there are a few increases there. Sorry, I've gone on too far. Um, and so we need um, measures to deal with this phosphorus issue, which would be very different than the nitrogen measures. So nitrogen trends are increasing a bit, especially in the estuaries in the south and southeast. And here, soils, climate, farm practice are important drivers at the farm scale. So for nitrogen, it's leaching throughout the soil and for phosphorus, it's running across the top of it. So we need to target very different measures to deal with both of these issues. And this slide is just highlighting the importance of that. So if we look at Ireland here on the graph, the blue markers here is showing where we have phosphorus issues and where we need to implement phosphorus runoff measures. And then the orange parts are where we have nitrogen leaching through the soil and where we need to implement nitrogen leaching measures. So again, it's just showing we need to target our measures to the loss that's, that's, that's at hand. So that's overall on our water quality. And we can see there we're, we still have issues and there's a number of things that we need to improve. And this is why we've had to add strengthened measures into our fifth nitrates action program to try and improve our water quality um, going forward. So I'm now going to go into some of the key changes that are in our new nitrates action program. So the first one is on slurry storage and management. And there's the last year, the close period was the 15th of October. We're bringing that date back. So with this year, the close period for slurry spreading will be the 8th of October. And from next year, that will be the 1st of October onwards. So it's, it's bringing it back by two weeks in total from next year onwards. But what we will do is develop predefined scientific criteria for the safe, safe application of slurry in those two week period between the 1st and the 15th of October. So depending on the weather conditions, the grass growth, we will look at these, come up with scientific criteria of where it's okay to apply um, slurry during this time. Um, and in those cases, it will be permissible to spread. So this will be done by the expert group and that's an ongoing process. In addition to the slurry storage and management changes, there's also been changes to soiled water storage requirements and closed periods. Previously, there was no closed period for soiled water but now we're implementing a closed period during the month of December. Um, and we have soiled water storage requirements to line up with those closed periods for soiled water also. The next one is the banning of the excretion rates for dairy cows. So the commission had asked for this, that you know, currently we have 89 kilos of nitrogen per hectare for all dairy cows. We know not all cows are equal. This is something the commission had asked us for. Other member states also introduced this on a banded system. So Chagas did some research to assess as the milk yield increases what happens so the results of this show us as milk yield increases in the dairy cow the nutrient output of that dairy cow also increases um, so how the banning will work is we have three different bands depending on your milk yield so we've less than four and a half thousand kilos between four and a half thousand to six and a half thousand kilos and above six and a half thousand kilos and that will determine the nitrogen and phosphorus output per year per dairy cow and that's what that banding system is showing us here. That will start from the 1st of January next year. So this year, we're still sticking with the 89 kilos per hectare for the dairy cow. And it's next year onwards that the banding system will come into play. It will be calculated on a rolling three-year average. And for next year, the first calculation, it will be using 2020 to 2022 data inclusive. So that will include 2020, 21 and 2022 data to determine which band your dairy cows fall into based on their milk yield. The next one is green cover on tillage ground. Um, so the requirement here is that shallow cultivation or sowing a crop must take place within seven days of baling of straw 
or seven days of harvest where straw is chopped. And the reason for this measure is after harvest in, a, um, in tillage land, we do have losses of nutrients. There can be a pulse of losses there after harvest where there's no crop to uptake what, what nitrogen is left in the soil. And the research is showing us that by you know, doing a light cultivation and encouraging natural regeneration or sowing a crop, it can take up that nitrogen and reduce those losses. And this is the reason for implementing this measure. Um, another point within the tillage measure that was highlighted to us, however, is that there is importance of overwinter stubble for seed eating birds here. If we cultivate all of this land, we're essentially wiping out the habitat for these seed eating birds. And you can see the picture of the yellowhammer here. This is one of the species of birds that rely on this as their um, habitat for the winter period. So this is something that the expert group is currently reviewing and it will be complete by July of this year to identify what percentage of this land should be left or what areas of land should be left and not cultivated at all um, to provide a habitat still for those seed eating birds, but also to ensure that we are implementing um, a green cover, you know, in the riskier ground areas to ensure that we're also complying with the water quality aspects of it. The next one is the soil sampling requirements. So this is something that's already required of the derogation farmers, so the more intensive farmers to take soil samples and have nutrient management plans. Now, from this year onwards, all farmers that are stocked above 170 kilos of nitrogen per hectare must take soil samples, so regardless of being in derogation or not. From next year onwards, so January 2023 onwards, this is for all farmers that are stocked above 130 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. Um, where soil samples are not taken, a P index of four must be assumed. So what this means is no phosphorus allowance whatsoever. So it's important to take those samples, know what fertility your soil is so that you can farm accordingly and apply nutrients accordingly. Without that soil analysis, there'll be no phosphorus allowance on that land at all. In addition to this, all arable land sown from next year onwards must also be soil sampled. The great grazing land management, um, there's, there's two different changes here. So the first one is on our commonage land. There's a change to the maximum stocking rate allowance here. This used to be 170 as per the nitrates regulations, but knowing what actually happens on the ground and the fact that this land is generally stocked much, much lower than that, now the maximum stocking rate allowance will be 50 kilos of nitrogen per hectare on commonage land with no chemical fertilizer allowed on this land. A second part here is reduced storage throughout wintering. So from 2025 onwards, so there's a bit of a lead in time here. This will only be applicable for those that are stocked at 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare and below. This is currently at 130 and it's reducing to that 100 figure from 2025 onwards. And another important one is the low emission slurry spreading. So again, this is already compulsory for farmers that are stocked at 170 kilos of nitrogen per hectare and above. And now it's becoming a compulsory measure for those lower intensive farmers on a phased basis. So from next year onwards, anyone operating above 150 kilos of nitrogen per hectare must use low emission slurry spreading equipment. From 2024 onwards, that's anyone stocked above 130. And from 2025 onwards, it's anyone stocked above 100. So that's coming in on a phased basis um, for the kind of more intensive farmers. The reason for this, again, again, is down to nutrient use efficiency and reducing the losses. So if we're applying um, nutrients using low emission rather than splash plate, we're reducing the losses to the environment, maintaining those nutrients and um, within that slurry on the land. And that helps to increase the, the nutrient use efficiency on farm. So it's valuing the nutrients from that slurry and getting the best use out of them. 
Low emission slurry spreading will also um, apply to all pig slurry from 2023 onwards. So anyone applying pig slurry to their land from next year onwards, it must be applied um, using low emission equipment. And finally, all organic manure applied to arable land, it must either be applied using low emission or incorporated within 12 hours of the application. So from next year onwards. So that's kind of some of the key measures to go into a bit of detail on, but there are other measures and I'll just touch on those briefly here, just, just so you know that there are some other changes. The first one is on sewage sludges and there was a number of questions on this one. So currently there's no change in the regulation on that for the minute, but it's something that we will be looking at in the interim review, which will happen next year. There has been a 10% reduction in the chemical end allowances in grassland. So table 12 and table 14 in the regulations now has a 10% reduction in those chemical end allowances compared to the previous SI. The next one is on organic matter determination. So if your land is coming out on that Chagask EPA indicative soil layer showing that you're in an organic matter um, area, previously a FOSS advisor could provide a certificate to say, this is mineral soil and you could farm that as a mineral soil. Going forward, that FOSS advisor certification is no longer applicable. And there's, there's two different options here. If your land is in this map layer showing that you have organic matter and you agree with this, then that's fine. You don't have to do anything. You can farm accordingly. If you don't agree with this and you don't think that you have this organic matter soil, you must take a soil sample to prove that it's not organic matter. And you must maintain that um, for, within your records. The next one is an update to the technical table. So the technical tables in the SI have been updated in line with the green book where they needed updates. So this included a change in the nitrogen content of cattle slurry to 2.4 kilos of nitrogen and a change in the broiler and deep litter manure also. And that was a change to 28 kilos of nitrogen. And that's based on the science that's in the, the, the Chavez green book. Another one is the maximum crude protein um, that's permissible fed to grazing livestock of 15% between the dates of 15th of April and 30th of September. And then the measures that I've explained so far are all measures that are within the good agricultural practice regulations. But within the action program, there has been some other measures that are very relevant and important from a nitrates point of view, but they're outside the scope of the good agricultural practice regulations. And this includes a register of chemical fertilizer sales, which will begin next year, improving compliance and enforcement overall, and review of the agricultural sustainability support and advisory program. And then finally, in our nitrates action program, what we have now is an interim review in 2023. So previously, we would decide our action program or finalize our action program. We'd have it for four years and we'd wait until that fourth year to do our review to see what will we do, what will we do, what will we change for the next nitrates action program, depending on water quality. This is now becoming more of a two year process to assess, well, what's happening um, more often, not just leave it for the four years and, and try and keep, keep, keep on top of it. Um, so we now have the requirement for the interim review next year, and this will be to ass assess effectiveness of the measures that we have and introduce any new measures um, as required. So there, there's a lot of information that changes um, within this new nitrates action program, and there's a lot of different rules coming down the line, depending on the intense, the intensive, how intensive the farm is. So it's just important for farmers to be aware of that, depending on their stock and rate, there are a number of new measures coming down the line for them. So I've spoke a lot now about the nitrates action program, and now I move into the nitrates derogation, which we secured for 2022 to 2025. The commission implementing decision with the rules herein um, has now been published, 
And this also includes the requirement for a two-year review based on water quality. So as I mentioned, we'll be doing a two-year review of the Nitrates Action Programme, but we'll also now be incorporating that review on water quality to feed into our nitrates derogation. And we do now have conditionality attached to this derogation. And there is a possibility that where we still have pollution, where worsening trends occur, the, the maximum limit of 250 may be reduced to 220 from 2024 onwards. So within the Commission derogation decision, and I'll, there's, there's another slide on this as well to explain the actual text here, there's a couple of things that the Commission have asked for. One of them is improving compliance and enforcement overall. So the local authorities um, are developing a national agricultural inspection program, and that's currently in development in conjunction with the Department of Housing. So the aim of this is to ensure that all local authorities are working consistently um, in relation to compliance and enforcement of the nitrates regulations. I think currently some of the local authorities are more active than others, and it's to align them all and make sure that, that they're all consistently doing the same thing. The next one is the department derogation inspection. So we previously would do 5% inspections on all derogation applicants. That's now increased to 10% of all applicants um, will be selected for inspection. And a third thing here, which is quite important and we didn't have before, is an applicant that's rejected from derogation from, for non-compliances or not um, farming to the terms and conditions. Once they're rejected from derogation for breaching these rules, they're no longer allowed to apply the following year. So if on inspection in 2022, a farmer is deemed to be rejected based on not complying with the terms and conditions, not only are they rejected for 2022, but they're no longer allowed to apply from 2023 onwards. And again, this is something that's set down in that derogation decision. Um, as I mentioned, there's a possibility of the derogation limit of 250 being reduced to 220 from 2024 onwards. And the situations where this will be is as follows. There's two parts here. One where the average values of nitrate concentrations are above 50 milligrams per litre, or we have increasing trends of nitrates. And as we've seen from the nitrates part, not all of our water is satisfactory when it comes to nitrates. So we do have work to do there. We might not have a lot of areas of Ireland that have high levels, so above the 50 milligrams per litre, but there are increasing trends and there are a number of points that do have that 50 milligrams per litre. So we need to improve that and we need to reduce those levels. The second part here is eutrophic status or could become eutrophic status with stable or worsening trends. And in relation to surface waters here, and our rivers uh, um, from the graph that you've seen on water quality, it will be the phosphorus parts that we're looking at here because this is their limiting factor when it comes to eutrophication in our surface waters. Um, our, we had a slightly better story in our phosphorus in that we had higher satisfactory levels, but we still had issues with phosphorus across the country. And we still do have a number of areas where the phosphorus levels are too high and will fall into that could become eutrophic status. So we have a lot of work to do and we do need a lot of improvements um, going forward um, to ensure that we maintain our derogation. So I've, I've covered a lot in that um, between the action program itself and the derogation, um, but it's important to think about the outlook. If we do implement everything, if we improve our water quality, where are we likely to be? So I think firstly, if we can if we, we can achieve improved water quality and reduce nutrient losses, if we implement the fifth nitrates action program properly, if it's fully implemented, if we have everybody complying with all of these regulations, we can achieve this. And it's really important um, that we all work together on this topic um, and improve our water quality going forward to maintain the action program that we have and to maintain the derogation that we have at current levels. 
This will allow us to meet our requirements under the Nitrates Directive and Water Framework Directive. So it will help us comply with the EU regs. But it's more important than that. That's, that's not the only thing here. It also increases our sustainability objectives. So we want to have improved water quality in Ireland. We want better air quality. We want increased biodiversity. Um, we want to maintain all of the nutrients, prevent losses and maintain those nutrients for the farmer. So economically, that's good for the farmer and it's also good for the environment. So we want to achieve that win-win and ensure Ireland's green credentials. Ireland has it's a very good reputation for being green and we want to make sure that we're maintaining that. So I've presented a lot on the regulation here today, and it's also important that, you know, that's not the only aspect here of, of achieving improvements in water quality. There's three pillars to this. So regulation, which I've covered, we also have incentivization and the industry. So incentivization being our AACM, our pillar two in the cap and the voluntary measures that farmers can take to go beyond the baseline and do further improvements. And that's also an important aspect. And the industry has a huge role to play as well. There's a number of sustainability initiatives and programs that the industry are doing. And we want to see more of this going forward. Basically, if we all work together, we can achieve improvements going forward. So I leave it at that and, and hand back to Pat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leanne. That's hugely comprehensive uh, and uh, questions starting to, to come in there. Uh, a number of them and uh, Ger will be uh, coming in with, with some of the questions and a lot of them around information uh, to farmers to, to help them and, and a little bit of clarity around that. One that, that uh, comes up fairly regularly in relation to uh, the introduction of less and the mandatory introduction of, of less where you uh, have generally supports then for uh, the, the purchasing of less equipment. And once it's mandatory, there's a timeline that comes into, into play in terms of that. Is there going to be within the next cap, a, as far as you're aware, a, 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 um, a capital support for the purchase of less equipment for farmers who are going to have to mandatorily uh, uh, use less? Yeah, so I'll touch on this and Ted might know more from the cap background, but we do have grants available for the purchasing of less equipment. And I see that going forward into the next cap. Um, yes, once once a measure becomes compulsory, there, there's one year left, basically, of being allowed to incentivize that. So if from next year onwards, you're now in that 150 category, you would still have one year to be eligible to purchase that equipment going forward. So it is important to bear that in mind. And that if you are falling into that category, you have one year left where you would be eligible for, for those incentives. I don't know, Ted, if you have more information on the numbers or the figures that we would have for less equipment, but I do see that going forward um, included in the TAMS grants. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. And I suppose just to add to Leanne's reply on that, you know, we have seen a very strong uptake of less technology through um, our TAMS scheme over recent years, and we would hope to continue that in the next cap. As Leanne said, while it will become mandatory for a lot of farmers, there will still be scope under the regulations to, to support it. And I think under the new cap regulations, it might even be for two years after it becomes mandatory. So it, it'll okay. be one or two years. I would just have to check the regulation in that regard. But we certainly are keen to continue to support less. And on farms where less will not be mandatory, we're also hoping to continue supporting it through our AECM. So the scheme that we're proposing to succeed after GLOSS will allow farmers to be supported uh, for less if they're the less intensive farmers where there's no regulatory requirement to use low emission story spreading. Okay. Thanks. 
just a, 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 a clarification in relation to the nitrates level where you're talking about it being above 50 milligrams per uh, uh, or 50 milligrams. Is that in relation to uh, river waters or ground waters or both? That's all of them. Yeah, yeah. it's all the waters. So that any, anything that comes up. Yeah. Okay, George, there's a lot of questions starting to, to come in. And you said a, a good few of them around information to farmers and the provision of information to farmers at the, at the beginning anyway. A couple of questions there around um, how are farmers going to be informed about the changes, to, specifically about, let's say, the, the requirements for soil sampling, the farmers that are going to be uh, brought into the net, if you like, next year on the 130 kilos uh, limit. Are they going to be informed by the department of their requirement this year? And um, similarly, the, even currently, the farmers that are above 170, uh, have they been informed that they have a requirement for soil sampling in the current year? So there's a, a few questions around that. And also, just a general question there, uh, how are farmers going to be uh, supported to achieve these changes in terms of reducing uh, losses to water in general and uh, uh, you know, educated in terms of um, what's causing the problem and how, how they're going to address it? So there's a general, okay. general question. Just, just on the communications piece there, uh, I'll start with that. So we do have the explanatory handbook for farmers in relation to the good agri agricultural practice regulations. They're, they are being updated and, and they're about finalised. So that's something that will be published on the website. Now, that document's about 50 pages long. So I know a lot of people won't actually read that. Um, and what we will do is develop a one page leaflet. Well, maybe two pages, but a shorter leaflet identifying the specific changes that will be required um, and will be required from farmers at certain stocking rates. So including the low emission um, requirement, depending on the stocking rate, including the soil sampling. And this is something that will be sent to all farmers in the country. So it will highlight those main changes, which stocking rates they refer to, and all farmers will receive that. And, you know, we've done a number of um, communications like the likes of today. We want to continue to get that message out there. And if there is advisors on the call today, we would really highlight to please get the message out there as much as possible. We have also been communicating with the, the farm organizations themselves and the farm bodies, again, to try and get the message out there to farmers. So we will publish that one page leaflet, but we would encourage everyone to, to help spread the message of what's coming down the line um, and speak to their clients um, where they are and what measures are likely to come to them. Okay, I suppose that one, one question was really, I suppose, specific about is there going to be a kind of forewarning for how things are going to be for next year in terms of, uh, uh, you know, if, if a farmer is currently at, uh, around the 130 or 135, will, will he get a specific message from the department to say you're, you're going to be in the, you know, every requirement for next year or will it be more broad spectrum communication? I would see at least the start would be a broad spectrum communication to let everybody know what's coming down the line, because if at next year a farmer could be one, two, nine and they think, OK, that the soil sampling requirement doesn't apply to me. But the following year, he could, you know, he could be coming at one, three, two and suddenly it does apply to him. So it is important that we let everybody know what all of the rules are. It's important that they can be aware that, you know, just in one year, you might that mightn't apply to you but the following year. It might. And it's important that they're aware of you know, what those stocking rate bands are, what's going to apply to who at which stocking rate band. So I think that broad message is important to go out there. And again, determine on each specific clients. I think it's important that the advisors work with their clients, know what stocking rates their clients are at and, and to inform them of what measures are going to come at them coming forward. So a few questions coming in on banding and the banding, uh, how it's going to be done. So the, the, the technicalities of how that data is going to be, where's the data going to come from to 
do those calculations? How is the department going to do that? And are, is there going again? Is there going to be a kind of a, a heads up for farmers in this autumn that what what the situation will be for the next year, so they can plan couple of questions around that? Yeah, we've we've we're in discussions on on the banding side, and rather than me answering every question, I'm going to hand this one to Ted. So before you get fed up of listening just to me. <laughs> Okay, we'll share, we'll try and share the burden of the questions. Um, look, the banding is obviously a big change for dairy farmers. And as Leanna said, it's due to apply from the start of next year. And it'll be based on a rolling three-year average. So for the first year, for 2023, it'll be based on milk supplies and cow numbers over the period 2020, 2021, and 2022. So it'll only be at the end of this year that we'd be able to definitively say which band each farmer falls into. But a farmer would be able to look at their own situation themselves and, and work it out. So we'll be looking at milk deliveries into the milk processors, and we'll be looking at the number of cows in the herd as per our, our AIM database. And we will obviously you know, be, be working with farmers to communicate that information as soon as we can. Okay. Hey, there's, a, there's a few questions there, in, uh, I suppose fairly quick fire ones. Uh, a question, does the um, the limits of, uh, apply uh, for, for soil sampling, uh, do they apply to, at grassland stocking rate or at whole farm stocking rate? It's grassland stocking rate we're looking at for those requirements. So it's your grassland stocking rate being above 170. Okay. And another question in relation to the drop of, to, of N content to 2.4, uh, and a question about the, the P content uh, equivalent to that. Is there a, a, a proposed drop there as well? Yeah, so currently we've we've changed the nitrogen figure from the 5 to the 2.4 as per the green book, but there was an oversight on the phosphorus value. So currently that's still at 0 0.8, but that will be reduced to the 0 0.5 figure in the next amendment of the regulations, which will occur when the derogation schedules are being added to it. So that will be in the coming weeks and that will be changed um, from that day forward. And is there a and couple of questions? Sorry, just, go ahead. Just to come in to, to add on that, if I could, please, you know, It'll be for DAFM to, to then apply the correct level for phosphorus, depending on the time when, say, for example, the slurry was moved. So within the year, we will have to do the calculations to make sure it's fair for people. If, if the value for phosphorus changes during the year, we'll have to recognize that and adjust our own calculations accordingly. Yeah, and there's a, there's a point made about some inconsistencies in the in the figures, but I think there is a review planned of the uh, of, of those technical tables between now and the, the the next iteration. Yeah, I suppose it's just important to note that what comes out of the back of the cow is not equal to what's in your slurry tank, and and this is what that Chagas research has shown us. The fig the figures in the slurry tank are quite different than what's coming out of the cow, so this is why. Um, those figures are as they are but yes there is there will be a review on those figures on the the volumes on the storage requirements and that will include um, on soiled water analysis as well so Chagask will do a survey um, of those figures and that will be something that's included in our interim review next year so the tables are as they are right now in the regulations um, but they may change going forward as per new research and new advice that we receive Okay, and there's just one other, and then I'll hand back to Jer. In relation, a question that is the only uh, sanction for for people who don't comply with with derogation that the fact that they're uh, uh, removed from derogation in in the following two years. 
Well, okay. There's a number of things here. So if you, if you're if you're found to be non-compliant of the nitrates term or the nitrates derogation terms and conditions, you'll be rejected. You're not allowed to apply the following year. But if you're found to be non-compliant with the baseline requirements of the nitrates action program, that will be cross-reported cross-compliance, com and there will be a, a sanction applied to that, depending on what the breach is and depending on the severity of it. There will be a, um, a sanction applied. So it's not only like, so if you're in derogation, it's not only rejection from derogation, but depending on what your non-compliance is, there may be a sanction as well if it's one of the baseline requirements. I suppose there's a few comments more than questions there about, you know, is, is it a bit late now to be telling farmers uh, about storage capacities? Is it possible that they're going to have this in place in time? Um, is it realistic that the, the increases are going to be accommodated? And I suppose a few questions there about the, the change in the uh, close period. Uh, what are the criteria that are going to be used? If, if that you know that you were saying criteria, scientific criteria could be applied there to uh, relax that in in certain years. What sort of criteria do you think might be used there? Yeah, so this scientific criteria, there there'll be two different ones. So actually, one is for applying slurry between the first and the fifteenth of October, and there's a second one for chemical nitrogen in January. So there's a change to that close period there as well that will be extended by two weeks. And we will develop scientific criteria there for the safe application of chemical fertilizer in January. This will essentially come down to soil moisture deficit and growth, uh, grass growth patterns. Um, it's something that the discussions are ongoing, so we don't have it finalized yet, but we will have that finalized um, in the coming months and published by September um, is the hope to have that information published by. And I forget what your other question was there, Nigel. Sorry, I think it was more on the banding again, was it? Uh, no, nah, I think you, you've addressed it fairly well. So um, just, uh, I suppose there's, there's, there's plenty of other questions coming here. Uh, what type of a defence, this is a very specific question, what type of defence, uh, not my words, is deemed serious enough for a farmer to be ejected from derogation? Rejected from derogation? Uh, okay, so the way the fencing works is there must be a fence, 1.5 metres. Sorry, all fence, I think, is... Uh... Oh, sorry, offense. Yes, sorry. <laughs> okay, what, okay what, sorry. What, I can see the confusion non- in your eyes there as well. Let's say non compliance, then, okay? So, what? Sorry, Jar, can you. What sort of non compliance would have a farmer rejected from derogation? Rejected from, well, breach? look, there's a number of terms and conditions that must be complied with. If you're not using low emission slurry spreading equipment, that will be one of them. Um, if you're not so, if you don't have the valid soil samples, if you don't have valid nutrient management plan, um, basically anything that's in that list of terms and conditions, that's you know, and that's published on the website. If you're not complying with those terms and conditions, you will be rejected from the scheme. Okay. If, if there's more specific questions, look I, I, again, I, we we do have a nitrates inbox. People can can email into, but yeah, if you're not complying with the terms and conditions, you can be so rejected from the scheme. Effectively, any non-compliance. E- effectively, exactly. Yeah, like the idea of the derogation, you're going above and beyond the baseline requirements. We're granted the derogation from Brussels on the condition that there's no negative impact for the environment. So we have to be really, really careful with those farmers to ensure they're complying with all of the rules and they're going above and beyond the rules. So it is important, um, especially on the intensive farmers, because they're the higher risk. Okay, here's a question on, again, on derogation. There seems to be a strong focus on derogation in, in the regulations rather than the general farm population. Uh, and like with likely cuts or potential cuts from 250 to 220 and so on. Is there evidence that the farmers in derogation are causing a bigger problem than the general farming population uh, 
people may be non-compliant in other ways. Look, it's, it's as I've said, we get granted a derogation from the European Commission. There, there's only four countries and actually three, three at the moment that have a derogation and one, the Netherlands, is looking for theirs. So Denmark and Flanders and Belgium are the only two that have them. It's, you know, it's, it's not a given that we have a nitrates derogation. We are going above the limits. This is, this is on risk, risk, riskier lands then because they're being farmed more intensive. So there's a higher risk of losses on these farms because there's higher nutrient input into these farms. And this is why this figure is, com- is coming. Um, we have to make sure that we're reducing our losses to waters. The idea, as I said, of the derogation is that we're granted it on the condition that there's no negative environmental impact. So we have to be careful and we have to improve our waters going, our, going forward. Yes, as a farmer gets more intensive, there are more requirements on them. And the, the basis of this is that as you get more intensive, you have more nutrients, you are more risky of losing those nutrients. There are a lot of baseline requirements there for, for all farmers as well, not just the intensive guys. And as I said, we're increasing the, the nitrates derogation inspections to 10%. But there's also a step up on the compliance and enforcement side overall for all farmers within that local authority inspection program. So we are looking at everybody here. It's, it's not just one single farmer. It's not just derogation. It's not just non-derogation. We are looking at all of them. There's a question there, Gerard, just uh, in relation to the identification of the most risky hotspots that might uh, fall into this requirement uh, for a a reduction. Uh, Is there an intention to try and alert people to the fact that they might be in one of these areas? Yeah, of course, this is something that we'd like to do. I mean, we've only received the final um, draft commission implement this implementing decision we're discussing this in the nitrates export group and we will be looking at again we look we need the data from this year before we can look at this properly of who's falling into where but we will be looking at you know who is in which catchment where where are the farmers likely to be um and we will be um informing them basically if they're if they're falling into that category but again we, we won't have that data until next year pat as you'll understand yeah, yeah. Okay, it's quite a technical question here now. Maybe it goes beyond maybe what we're discussing today a little bit, but uh, it's it's about the you mentioned that eutrophication status due to peas in freshwaters um, is, is in relation to the derogation. But mm-hmm. this question is about the effect of N on, on eutrophication, specifically in transitional waters and I suppose estuarine waters and so on. How is this going to be tracked back to the source, which maybe not not close enough, not very close to the transitional waters at all. So it could be a groundwater source, for instance. Um, so how is that going to, is there going to be, I suppose, there, uh, is that relationship between where the problem might be occurring and where the, uh, the cause might come from? Is that, how is that going to be? There's, okay, there's a couple of things there. Yeah, in, in the graph, I was showing you rivers. So I showed you nitrate in rivers and then the phosphorus I focused in on eutrophication. But we're right, when it comes to eutrophication, phosphorus is the limiting factor when it comes to surface waters, but it's nitrogen that's the limiting factor causing eutrophication when it comes to coastal waters. So depending on which waters you're dealing with there, it will be a different nutrient that's causing that eutrophication. Um, In terms of the source that's causing the pollution, um, that's something that will will have to be looked at. Like from the graph that I pointed out, Yes, agriculture is one of the most significant impacts and pressures, but it's not the only one. And there may be catchments where agriculture is at pressure, but it might, might not be the worst one. And we will have to assess the other pressures that are there as well. So look, I don't have a specific answer for that right now, 
but it will be incorporated into, you know, when we're looking at the, the catchments that fall into this category. Okay, there's a question here on digested from um, from biogas plants and, and uh, you know, digesters. Um, how is this to be classified in the future? Uh, is it organic? Is it a biofertilizer? How is that going to be dealt with? There's, there's no change to that in the regulations as of today. Uh, and that kind of sludge um, digested part is something that will be looked at in the review next year. So as of today, they need to have a, a nutrient analysis um, to show us what they have before it's applied to land. Um, and that will be looked at in the interim review, but it's there's no change as of today. I suppose the general theme of the, the questions uh, of a good number of questions are around the communication piece over the next year with the farm with farmers, particularly with the level of changes that are, are coming in, uh, in in 2023. Is there a plan uh, to engage in that? Yeah, look, I've mentioned the handbook, the leaflet, and we would like to have other strategic communication to, to farmers where rules are going to apply to them. But again, rather than keep listening to me, I'm going to hand to Ted so um, he can come in on this communication part because we are keen on, on making sure that the message is communicated. Yeah, and, and look to pick up on that. We are very keen to ensure appropriate communication and that people will know well in advance of when requirements apply. So in the, in the recent weeks, we have had a webinar for the Farm Advisory Service. We have this webinar this morning. We've also met with all of the main farming organizations and we've met with the dairy industry as well. So we're keen to continue that momentum as well in terms of communicating out to farmers. And as Leanna said, we will have the Farmer's Handbook published on our website, but in recognition for the fact that many farmers will not have the time to read the full handbook, we will have more strategic communication through the leaflet highlighting changes and then also you know timely communication as well for example you know as the as the period for slurry spreading comes back in the autumn to use things like our social media channels our sms text messaging to inform farmers that have livestock on their holdings that the the closed period for slurry spreading is being brought back a week this year you know so farmers will have timely communication to remind them and ensure that we have good awareness of, of the changes that are coming through. Ed, there's, there's a, a specific question on this topic and a, a very specific thing. Uh, are we going to have meetings with farmers in hotels around the country, a kind of a roadshow? Is there any plans for any, any of that type of activity by the department? I suppose at the moment we have no specific plans. We will be attending the ploughing championships all going well in September. And we'll be very happy to engage with individual farmers around that. But I think, you know, if you look at the likes of this webinar this morning, we've had we've had over 320 people um, come in to listen to the webinar today. Similarly, when we addressed the, the Farm Advisory Service back at the end of March, we had in the region of, I think, around 350 participants in that webinar. So it's it's to look at the technology as well and how we can communicate most effectively with people. OK, thanks very much, Ted. Um... Just, I suppose there's a general question here on um, on the banding, and is it is it who decides? Is, is this going to be a decision that the farmer makes based on what his own information is? And you know, can it be adapted? Can the farmer adjust, or the, or his advisor, or uh, is it going to be um, you know fixed? Uh, fixed so centrally calculated based on data from co-ops, etc. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it'll be a fixed figure as such. So we're talking about kilograms of milk 
And so the farmer can look at that. They can use the, the standard coefficient converting liters to kilograms. And then it's to look at the number of cows in the herd. So the farmer will have the scope, I suppose, if they wish, if they choose to dry off cows earlier or to manage the herd in a certain way, um, there will be scope for them to, to influence the average yield per cow, obviously. But ultimately, it's a straight mathematical calculation. The kilograms of milk divided into number of cows based on a three-year rolling average. So as I said earlier, you know, if farmers want to work out or get an idea of what band they're likely to fall into, they should look at their milk yield for 2020, 21, and consider their likely milk yield for 22, and then look at their average number of cows over those three years as well. You know, and when we get to a point where we've the full milk data in for 2022, it's only then we'll be able to definitively say exactly what band people fall into. The question here, uh, uh, St. Leanne mentioned the need for different measures for NMP losses on different soil types. Uh, and it's kind of asking the question uh, or uh, indicating that most of the, the, the actions seem to be related to nitrogen. Uh, uh, what are we doing in relation to phosphorus and maybe uh, phosphorus in not so highly stocked areas? Yeah, look, there's a number of measures for both. And I suppose a lot of the compliance measures in the nitrates regulations come down to nitrogen because the basis of that is preventing nitrate losses. But we do have phosphorus included in our regulations and we do need to prevent losses of phosphorus as well. And as I mentioned, phosphorus is our limiting factor in our surface waters causing eutrophication. And this is why it's something that we need to prevent losses of. So when it comes to phosphorus, it's overland flow that we need to stop. And what we want to do here is break the pathway. So we're talking of breaking the pathway of loss. So implementing riparian um, margins can be something there, getting close to a, um, a river. And there's other, I mean, Pat, you'll know yourself from the asset program. I'm sure there's a number of measures and it's important to have them key to the farmer. Like, as I said, the same measure is not going to be appropriate for everyone. So we just need to make sure that they are targeted. A couple of questions here on, on the the regulatory, uh, the, the new regulations regarding uh, fertilizer register and so on. So there's a specific question, will it apply to all fertilizers, even sort of compounds that might be used at low levels in, in, in more marginal areas? And I suppose um, another general question around the regulatory issue, is there going to be a, is it likely there's going to be a, a permitting or licensing system similar to what we have in the pigs and poultry for the very large intensive units? So I suppose that's a two-part question. Okay, so the, the fertilizer register, the fertilizer database, we're calling it now, will track all fertilizer sales, so compounds, straight nutrients, it will track all of them, and it will also include lime sales in that. Um, so it's in development at the minute, um, and the aim is to have it in place by the 1st of January next year. So when we have it open 1st of January next year, farmers will input their opening stock on farms, so what they have at that moment. And then any sale going forward, so go into your co-op and you're buying um, any fertilizer or lime, you provide your herd number, and then it's the, it's the retailer that's tracking what's been sold, maintaining that database and submitting that data to the department. Um, so it's not the farmer that has to worry about the input of the data, it's, it's the retailers and it's the point of sale where the information will be coming from. We will then have the maintain the database and the farmer will have access to this information for themselves. I mean, they may need to use it for, there may be sustainability payment from industry for lower fertilizer use or whatever the case may be, and they'll be allowed to access their own information to use that going forward as well. Um, in relation to permitting, like there won't be, a, 
we've had questions around this as well. Will there be a restriction on how much fertilizer a farmer can buy in? There won't be a restriction on that. Um, but if a, if a farmer exceeds the requirements, um, they may receive a penalty. And it will, again, as I've mentioned, they will input the opening stock at the start of the year, but they will also be inputting the closing stock at the end of the year for what they didn't use and what will carry forward into the following year. So there will be a once per year input of closing stock on the farm. So we're, we're accurately tracking it throughout the year. I don't see a permitting um, thing in place in the same way as the pig and poultry at the moment. Um, and that's not in plan for next year. But as we progress, this is something that we will continuously develop over time. So that is something that could come in in the future, but it's not envisaged for the beginning. There's a, a question in relation to, to uh, uh, ploughing for reseeding on, on uh, derogation farms. Uh, I suppose that the, the logic behind it and will farmers be allowed to use mintill in these uh, uh, periods when they can't plough? Yeah, so there is this new restriction in the derogation. So, well, I'll, yes, it's new, but the, there was similar wording there before. So previously it was that temporary grassland shall only be ploughed in the spring. Now it is any farmer that wishes to plough grassland shall do so between 1st of March and the end of May. So ploughing is only permitted within those dates. So outside of that, you cannot plough. But I would envisage, yes, you can use mintail. As long as you're not ploughing and you're doing minimum cultivation there, that should be allowed. The reason for this is that ploughing at any time of the year and ploughing grassland, you're going to have an increase in nitrogen mineralization. There's an increase of nutrients there and there's an increase in the potential for loss. Um, so this is why that restriction is there at different times of the year, because we want to reduce that loss of nutrients. So we want to make sure that we're not plowing down deep. And even with the mintail, we want to make sure it's, it's kind of a bare scratch of the surface that's been used for, for reseeding um, there just to prevent those losses. That's the reason for this measure. OK, and I'm just Sorry. just to add to that, um, this restriction on plowing, it only applies on derogation farms, um, you know, so to be very clear. It applies in derogation farms because by definition that land is more intensively farmed it's in receipt of higher nutrient levels okay okay well it's it's come to 10 30 uh and uh, i suppose we're going to have to leave it there i would like to to thank uh ted and, and particularly Anne for an absolutely brilliant presentation and and for clarity in the in the, the questions so thank you thank you very much for for your contribution and, and it's great great to have had you here thank you uh, very much next week we, we have uh, on Friday, uh, the 20th is, is World Bee Day, and we will have Ruth Wilson from the National Biodiversity Centre looking at actions for pollinators and biodiversity on, 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 on the farm. So we look forward to that. Uh, before I finish, I'd like to, to thank our, our production team of uh, Yvonne Maher and, and Andy Boland and wish you well uh, over, uh, for a nice weekend and uh, hopefully we'll see you again next week. And thanks again, Ger, for, for your assistance on questions. So with that, we'll leave you and uh, goodbye. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.